Best Book Bits podcast brings you John Torrance, founder and president of multiple companies in healthcare and education, professor of entrepreneurship, mentor and coach to student startups, strategic thinker and business advisor, consultant, board member, public speaker, TEDx speaker and author of the book, Lightning in a Bottle, How Entrepreneurs Can Harness Their ADHD to Win. John, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Michael. Thank you for having me. No worries. Amazing book, by the way. So, um, you know, especially someone like me who's written, who is an entrepreneur and suffers from a little bit of uh, ADD and ADHD, which we'll jump into. But can you take us back to your journey on how you started personally with entrepreneurship and ADD and ADHD? Yeah, sure. So I, I think the, in summary, I think it started because I just make a lousy employee. I, you know, I just never found that working in a super structured environment was working for me, um, all, even like through high school, college, and even after. So, you know, I just kind of created my own job through starting my own business, and that tended to work a lot better for me. And, and along that way, uh, th that's where I started to discover more about these things, learn more about myself. And then you fast forward a decade later when I started getting into researching the link between ADHD and entrepreneurship, that's when it really got pretty interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. And currently at the moment, you're uh, a professor of entrepreneurship for the last, what, 15 years or so. Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of unfolded and how you got into that particular field? Yeah, sure. So I... Um... I, I was a business owner. I had an exit back in 2008 and wasn't really sure what I was going to do at that point. Um, had the opportunity to teach a course in the entrepreneurship department at Syracuse University, which has been a you know, perennially top ranked program in the U.S. And I jumped at the opportunity because I thought it would be really fun. And I did fall in love with it. It was a great experience. And I thought, hey, I'm a successful entrepreneur. I could teach this stuff. It's going to be easy only to find out that it was really hard and I was horrible at it my first time. Uh, so apologies to my first semester students. I'm really sorry. <laughs> so but I got beaten up on my uh, course evaluations. Uh, apparently I was disorganized. I was all over the place. I was passionate and I was very um, you know, enthusiastic about the subject matter, but I didn't know how to teach it. So once I got that feedback from the students, I thought, okay, I'm gonna take this seriously and develop this craft, right? I mean, teaching entrepreneurship and practicing entrepreneurship are two very different things. They require different skill sets, um, different areas of focus. So that's what I did. I, I went down this path of, of trying to be an excellent teacher. And you know, over time, it started working. I started talking to master teachers, going to conferences and seminars. I ended up winning a, uh, a university-wide uh, teaching award. I think it was back in 2014 or 15, which was really nice recognition for all the effort I put in. So it's very uh, fun for me now to use the the new skill and you know hopefully approaching mastery that I have in teaching entrepreneurship. And it's it's great to interact with my students, teach them uh, you know about entrepreneurship. Um, help them understand how to make their ventures grow, how to be better entrepreneurs, how to be better founder CEOs and so on. So I still, I still have a business that, that I own and operate. And I also am a full-time professor of entrepreneurship, which probably makes you think right away that, yeah, this guy's got ADHD. I mean, he can't settle down. Right. So I, I, I have two 
for all intents and purposes, full-time jobs really, right? I, I run a business, I'm a faculty member, and they just both kind of come together to form what I think is a really cool way of life. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing the story. It's funny everyone's got such a unique looking back, connecting the dots, how it all sort of unfolds as well. And tell me about the motivation behind the book. Uh, why did you write it and when did it come out? Yeah, so it came out in January 2021. And it it's interesting where it came about. So so my, my interest in ADHD started um, when my company was still pretty young. And I remember, you know, I was growing the company really fast. Things were just clicking. It was working really well. And I got to a point where things weren't working so well anymore. I was driving my own employees crazy. They didn't know what to expect from me. You know, we'd have a, a strategic planning meeting where we'd set a direction and the very next day at the water cooler, I'd be talking about some other cool thing I wanted to chase down and people would be like, well, we just spent a day and a half talking about what we're actually gonna do. Now you're talking about something different, right? I would be in meetings with people distracted, thinking of anything but what they were trying to tell me just because I had so many things going on in my head. So because I was having difficulty with my key people, most of my people, anybody who had regular interactions with me, were, were getting really frustrated. So I was working with a, an executive coach at the time who recommended that, you know, maybe I see a psychiatrist and, and talk about ADHD. I thought it was kind of silly, but I went along with it. And as you could guess, the psychiatrist was like, yeah, you've got ADHD and you didn't just develop it as an adult. You've had it your whole life because we went back and looked at my educational history and my records and my report cards from when I was in elementary school. I had to get all these records and bring them to the doctor's visit. And all the comments were like, you know, John's got so much potential if he could just focus or he gets done with his work really quickly and then goes and bothers and disturbs other students. And so these comments were very frequent. And so the, the psychiatrist was like, yeah, you've, you've got ADHD. It's very clear. Now here's some medication you could take. And I thought, I, I don't know about medication. I think I'm going to try to manage this myself. So I did go down the medication path, um, tried a variety of them, didn't like the side effects, although, you know, I, I was able to focus, but I opted against that and just chose other methods, which we can talk about later. But because of that experience, I, I was in, and, and so now I, now I'm an entrepreneurship professor, also an entrepreneur. I had the great fortune of having my office right next door to a guy named Johan Wickland, who's one of the premier researchers, premier academics in entrepreneurship on the planet. And one of his passions is the link between ADHD and entrepreneurship. So Johan and I were just catching up one day and he was telling me about this. And I thought, you know, I'm interested in that line of inquiry as well. So we kind of collaborated on a, on a study on members of YPO or Young Presidents Organization. These are entrepreneurs. They're not always entrepreneurs. They could be hired guns, family business members, but a lot of them are entrepreneurs, about a third of them. And I said, look, I'm a member of this organization. And when I go to meetings or I hang out with these people, it is super clear that almost every one of them have ADHD, <clears throat> but they're all super successful, right? To be a member of YPO, you have to have a company with, I think it's maybe 15 million in revenue, at least 50 employees, and, and there, there's different criteria, right? So very high functioning entrepreneurs, but also super hyper and impulsive and distractible. So I thought, hey, this is, this is kind of interesting. Let's look at this. So we used a sample of YPO members in the entrepreneurship network within YPO. And we did a study on them and we realized that th there is a lot 
of ADHD in, in this population. So that was interesting. Uh, and then it, it led to a TED talk because part of what I do at the university is translate the academic research of my colleagues into real world uh, applications. So I did a TEDx talk because I thought that would be a good way to spread the word. I got a lot of interest, like people found this talk and were just reaching out to me on every platform, you know, LinkedIn, um, Facebook, on my email. So I decided, well, you know, instead of writing back to every one of these people individually or just sending them a canned response, maybe I could, you know, expand on the book and, or expand on the talk and turn it into a book. So that, that's how the book was conceived and developed. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, again, yeah, great, uh, great story and how it unfolded. Couple of notes. So one thing interesting that you wrote about the um, the report cards. So about a year ago, I was going through some old stuff and I found my old school reports, like from you know from my younger years, from primary school, high school, and I was the same person. Like from six, I've got a four-year-old son, and I was reading his report from like kindergarten daycare and. It's just so funny that we don't change as as really a person as our, as our identity. Um, so that, that that blew me away when I was reading your book when you talked about report cards as well. Also, the thing about um, ADHD is you know it's it's our greatest sort of uh, superpower, but it's also sometimes our greatest liability as well. And then the other thing you said in the book when you went to see the psychiatrist, you found out you had it, but everyone around you already knew you had it, such as like your your partner as well. My partner calls me the original ADD, and I've just recently had a friend who's gone down the experience of having ADHD, getting medicated for it, and then you know spreading all the benefits for it as well. And so you have to get on this medication because it will change your life. I'm sort of anti-medication, so I'm more interested in the non-medication methods on how we can do it. Um, I've got my own process, how I deal with my own... ADD, uh, if you if you call it, but I don't tick all the particular boxes as well, which we'll jump into as well. But yeah, while, while we're here, um, talk about some of the non-medication methods or ways that people can sort of help their ADD, ADHD. Sure. So so first, I want to say that you know I'm, I'm not a physician, so don't don't take medical advice from me. I'm just sharing my own experience on this. So I, I did try the various medications because I thought, hey, if I could control this well, that would be that would be a win, right? That'd be good for me, for my organization, for my family, and for my life. Because even though ADHD is very functional in the context of entrepreneurship, it has plenty of downsides. And I don't want to minimize ADHD and say that, hey, this is great for entrepreneurship, because in some cases and in a lot of ways it is but there are also a lot of downsides to it. So it is worth managing to the extent you can. Medication for a lot of people that I know works really well. Uh, I tried it, I didn't like it. I did notice that I was able to focus for longer periods of time, <clears throat> but I also felt very, um, very, very much not like myself, right? So I wasn't you know, as cheery, I wasn't as energetic, I wasn't as outgoing. I didn't feel like I was as creative. I did have a little trouble sleeping. I had some trouble with appetite on every drug that I took. So I took, you know, Vyvanse, Ritalin, uh, a, a bunch of them, and each one of them had slightly different effects. So I decided to just, you know, try a different route. But I should say that both of my kids, as teenagers, were diagnosed, which is no surprise, you know, based on your experience as well. Uh, my son, so they both ended up with Vyvanse through testing different drugs. Uh, it worked well for both of them. 
My son had terrible side effects in terms of appetite and sleep. My daughter, she didn't have the sleep side effects, but appetite was a little bit of an issue. So we just kind of managed when they took it. But for both of them, the effects were profound. They were able to focus on their schoolwork, get their homework done, but they both also felt very different when they were on it. And I remember my son saying, well, you know, I have to take this pill so everybody will like me or deal with me. And that was heartbreaking as a parent, right? I mean, you don't want your kid to think he has to take a pill so people will like him or deal with him. It's really, that's, that's a tough thing to, to accept. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the reason we medicate children is so that they fit neatly into the box of our public education system. We medicate our children, not necessarily for their success, but for the convenience of the adults in their life. That's my own personal feeling on it. I'm sure other people may have differences of opinion, but that's how I feel. So the way I went about it after I tried the medication, and, and this was a very long process, trial and error, talking to doctors and that sort of thing, uh, doing my own research. So, so what I found out there, there's, there's two buckets, right? One, one is the, the input and one is the output. So what, what, what's going in? What am I consuming? Not just through my mouth and my ears and my eyes, but just generally, right? So what am I eating and drinking? Am I eating a lot of sugars and caffeines and dyes? Um, am I drinking a lot of alcohol? Um, am I getting the right nutrients? So, so just basic nutrition, right? If you could manage that, you're going to be a good portion of the way there because what you put in your body is profoundly important. So I don't want to get on a, a, a soapbox about that, but it's worth it to talk to a nutritionist or somebody who knows a little bit about how diet affects ADHD. Super important. I've experimented with this one, getting off coffee for two years and me being hyper-focused and then getting back on, like I was on teas still caffeine but then getting back on coffees and knowing that it was just it just spiked my um adhd and lack of focus if that makes sense so yes i i, I agree with definitely playing around with nutrition and caffeine and experimenting with what you eat and drink as well but yeah please continue john yeah no sure because anything that's a central nervous system stimulant is going to cause you uh you know some hyperactivity or impulsivity right if, if that is your your uh your ADHD. So, so the other thing about the consumption is, is what are you taking in through your ears and eyes, right? So it's not just nutrition, but it, it's, it's information and media. So I used to be the guy with three screens, you know, a stock ticker here, you know, Outlook, WhatsApp, uh, my social media. I mean, I had information coming at me from everywhere, hyper stimulating. This message pops up. I've got to deal with it. That message pops up. I got to deal with it. You've probably had the exact same experience where you go to do something and 10 minutes later, you're like, what was I, what was I going to do? Because you've done 10 other things in the meantime, right? So how are you managing those inputs and how are you managing that consumption? Do you turn your phone off at night? Um, is the very first thing you do in the morning is do you reach for your phone and look at it and start scrolling through your messages and that's how you start your day. So not only consumption in terms of nutrition, but consumption in terms of media and information is super important. So for me, having these periods at both ends of my day, so the beginning and the end of my day, I try my best to turn it all off. Doesn't always happen because like I said, I've, I've got two essentially full-time jobs. So I have a lot of people relying on me and reaching out to me. But in general, I try not to reach for my phone right away in the morning. And I try to stop all screens, including TV, for an hour or two before I go to bed at night. So that, that's the consumption side. 
The next is the output side or the activity side. And yes, there's physical activity, which is super important. In ADHD, we are seeking endorphins, right? So our, our sensation seeking and that hyperactivity is we're, we're, we need endorphins, right? So the more you can move, the more you can exercise, whatever it is that you do in terms of movement is going to be super helpful. The other thing that's really helpful, there's a lot of research to support this, is some sort of mindfulness practice. Adding a mindfulness practice is not only good for a whole measure of uh, biomarkers and health markers, but it's really good for focus. So if you think about it, it's you're, you're kind of paying attention to the way you pay attention, right? Focusing on your breath, doing a mindful exercise, it could be gratitude, whatever it is. But those types of things tend to reset the nervous system in a way that really helps my ability to focus and perform. Uh, and, and the other thing in terms of activity, uh, not just physical activity or mental or spiritual activity, but work activity. Are you doing things that you like and you're good at? If not, you're going to have some trouble, right? Because we're going to procrastinate. We're not going to do it. or We're going to give it a shot just to say we did it. And then it's not going to be as good as it should have been. And we're going to have to redo it. So think about those things and the things in your life that you don't like or you're not good at but that are also critically important, you need to find somebody to do those for you, right? Hire somebody, have an assistant. So for me, I absolutely hate putting together PowerPoints. I hate it. I'm not good at it. I think it's a waste of time. I actually hate teaching with PowerPoints because I think it's the mother of all boredom, for me at least. I have a, a TA who does my PowerPoints for my classes. I have assistants at work who help me with that. Um, because if, if I had to rely on myself, I would never do them or I would do them and they would suck. <laughs> so I have nice PowerPoints, but I don't create them because I'm not good at it, right? Focus on the things you really like and that you're really good at because you're gonna be the best at those. Do the things that only you can do and have somebody else do things that they do. It's amazing to me how many people love to do the things that I hate. They absolutely love it and they're great at it. So why not let them do it, right? So think of it, you know, from the standpoint of consumption, what are you consuming both nutritionally and informationally? And what type of activity are you engaged in both from a, a spiritual, mental, and physical perspective, but also from a work perspective, you put those things together and you can start to see really uh, good effects. Yeah. And I want to second that as well. So, uh, circling back to what you said earlier, you touched on it really quickly that you believe, and I believe too, that people, kids, society, here's a pill to take because it's easier for the adult just to give someone a pill where it takes work to change someone's nutrition. It takes work for yourself to, what am I consuming? What am I eating? Am I exercising? Or even the, the child with ADD or hyperactivity. So sometimes it's easier just to, here's medication, oh, tick that box. Yep, you fall under the category of you've got six or more symptoms in ADHD or ADD and here's a pill to take versus actually getting to the root of it, which is, it's not a problem really for the person having it so much. It's more for the problem with the, with the adult or the people around as well. So I, I thought, thought that was really, really interesting what you said there as well. Totally agree with you with the hiring of the things that you don't love or aren't good at as well. And you're absolutely right. There's so many people out there that love the things that you don't love to do. And as an entrepreneur, 
with ADD or without ADD as well. You can start a company, and we'll get into it in the book as you talk about we're great at you know starting things, not necessarily great at finishing things as well. So it's very important to know your strengths and very important to, to know your weaknesses as well. Um, great stuff. Oddball question. You're a member of Mensa, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. How did you, what's your story behind that? How did you get involved in that? So a lot of members of Mensa get in this way. It's so I was talking to a, a friend of mine who said, who, who just casually mentioned, and I, I don't even remember the context, but he said he was a Mensa member. And I was joking. I'm like, oh, like, you know, if you're a Mensa member, then the bar must be really low. Right. And it became a challenge. He's like, well, you know, why don't you take the test? And I said, well, if you got in, I surely can, right? Just you know, joking around. So we never did anything with it. And you know, a couple months later, he's like, "Hey, did, did you ever do that? They do these tests every month." So finally, I said, "Sure, I'll do it." Um, and it's it's a very narrow measure of intelligence, right? It, it it basically tests how quickly you can give the correct answers for some math and language questions, right? So it's a super super narrow measurement of intelligence but you know card carrying member you know showed my friend that yes i could <laughs> i could chin the bar too um it, it's an interesting organization right that i mean there's there's a lot of super intelligent people out there and and you know i sometimes participate in you know chats or discussion groups or at least read some of the information and it's kind of fun but um you know nothing that i'm super involved with no the reason i ask it um when i read the book i was like oh that that's interesting. Let me do some research. I actually booked in to do a test, so um, trying to uh, to see see where it's at, which which is really cool. Let's jump in. Let's jump into uh, business and uh, entrepreneurship and starting the business as well. So you're actually a trained uh, speech therapist or pathologist. Is that correct? What was? Tell me a little bit about some of the companies that you've been involved in and and exit as well. I know you've had a, a great uh, a great run of success as well, and then we'll jump into some of the traits involved with entrepreneurship as well. Yeah, sure. So so I got into speech and language pathology in kind of a roundabout way. I um as a high school kid, I was you know as you can imagine, I was relatively unfocused. I was a decent student, but not a great student, only because. I didn't really care that much, right? If, if, if I passed, I was happy, right? I didn't have aspirations to go to an Ivy League school. I didn't want to go into West Point. I, I, I didn't even know what I wanted to do except get through high school. I was a musician. I'm a sax player. I was pretty good at it. So I'm like, well, I'll go to college for that. So I got into music school and I thought I was going to be a performer, right? I was going to be the next Clarence Clemens or something, right? But I realized that when you go to school for music, really they're teaching you how to be a music educator which I thought, all right, this is fine. They sent me on an observation to watch a fourth grade clarinet lesson as part of my first semester. And I don't know if you've ever heard a fourth grader play a clarinet. It's not a pleasant experience. It's painful. And I remember going back to my dorm room in a panic thinking, I, I can't do that because I'm going to be a music teacher, but I'm not going to start out as a music teacher uh, teaching the high school jazz ensemble. I'm not going to be with the best of the best of the kids. I'm going to be teaching these fourth graders how to not squeak a clarinet. So I thought this is this is not my life. I can't do this. So I the only other liberal arts course I was taking as a freshman music major was intro to psychology. I did really well with it. So I said, all right, I'm going to be a psychology major. Fast forward to graduation. What do you do with an undergraduate psych major? basically nothing or go to graduate school. So I applied to graduate programs. I was going to be a clinical psychologist. 
Um, I got into Syracuse University and they sent me a letter saying, hey, congratulations, but we have to tell you that during what will be your third year, there's a possibility that we'll close the program. Uh, so if you don't want to come here, we understand, but we'll also give you admission into any one of these other programs. Speech language pathology was one of them. I liked linguistic psychology. So w within probably a 20 second decision-making window, I chose speech and, and that's how I ended up being a speech therapist. No deliberation, no thought, no research. I just thought, Hey, I like linguistic psych. This is going to be cool. I got into it and I, and luckily for me, I really loved it. I thought this, this is really interesting. Um, so, so I had a great time in my graduate program. When I got out, I started working for the state of New York because I was on what they called a health course scholarship. So they pay for your graduate degree and in exchange, you have to give them a year and a half of, of work. Uh, and I realized why they were doing that. It's because the settings they had me in were places that they couldn't recruit for. So I was in, I wasn't doing the best type of work. I wasn't doing work that I felt I was trained for, uh, didn't have really great supervision. I, I would wake up on Sunday already depressed because I knew I had to go to work on Monday. So I realized this was no way to live. So I just, I quit my job and I owed the state all sorts of money and interest and fees and penalties because I didn't fulfill my obligation as you know, in, in the indentured, um, you know, work aspect of it. So I paid all the money back, hung my shingle, was a private practitioner and I was, you know, I was doing okay. I was billing myself out at, I think it was at the time, this was almost 30 years ago, but $40 an hour, which, you know, for a young guy with a car payment and rent and some student loans wasn't bad. And then I realized, well, I'm only going to get paid if, if I work and that doesn't seem so cool. So one of my friends who is, you know, just a serial entrepreneur since he was very young said, well, why don't you hire somebody to help you? And I thought, yeah, maybe I'll do that because I was the typical technician who, who was in business for myself, but didn't know anything about business. So actually a funny story on that too. I very, um, impulsively enrolled in a PhD program because I went up to the university and said, Hey, I, I want to take an accounting course, uh, just so I know, you know, when I'm going to go bankrupt, right? <laughs> you know, so I can tell every, give everybody enough heads up. And they said, well, you know, why don't you enroll in the MBA program? And I thought, you know, I have one master's already. I don't really want another master's. So I did what any logical person would do. I said, well, screw it. I'm going to get a PhD in business. <laughs> so that's what I did. Like, and again, literally without any forethought, without any premeditation, which is one of the hallmarks of impulsive and hyperactive ADHD, didn't think about it for more than 20 minutes. I didn't even think about the financial impacts. I didn't think about that. I was going to have tuition bills for the, you know, until I was done. I didn't realize that I had just started my business, but now I'm going to be committing to 15 to 20 hours of homework every week. Or the fact that my wife was just about to have our first child. Didn't think of any of that. I just thought, Hey, this would be great to, to have this information. Um, so I did it and you know, luckily I do have a little bit of grit. So I stuck with it even when it got hard. So I got my PhD, but along the way, I used my small business as my lab experiment. Every single course I took required a project, whether it was introduction to business law, you know, I, I got my contracts all sorted out and worded better. Uh, introduction to marketing. I actually developed a real marketing plan on and on and on. Everything I had to take, it was directly applicable to my business. So I, I went from zero to 8 million in revenue in the matter of uh, maybe, uh, I don't know, it felt like a long time, but it was probably only five or six years. And, um, and at that point it was just, you know, that actually that is the point that I realized I was suffering from ADHD because my employees were having a hard time.
So anyway, in 2008, I, uh, I did exit the company uh, from, for the first time. And, and the rationale was really that I knew nothing lasted forever. You know, um, we were super dependent on the New York State budget uh, from health and education. And every April, it got really stressful wondering whether or not they were going to fund our programs because we worked with young kids with disabilities. And these were mostly programs paid for by the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, um, managed by the states. So you know, when I decided that it was time to go, I, I had a few offers, um, you know, took one that I thought was decent. Um, a couple of years later, I had an opportunity to buy part of the company back, which I did, uh, grew it again with an external partner and then, um, got out about, I think it was nine years later. And then once my non-compete was up, I bought a former competitor, uh, formed a joint venture with another competitor and now we're ramping it back up. So, uh, yeah, it's, a you know, kind of a, uh, it's not a direct path. And a lot of, a lot of my successes were the result of pretty impulsive decisions that didn't re didn't, um, didn't get thought through very much. And that is one of the things you notice in entrepreneurs with ADHD is that we don't overthink things. And in the worst case, that makes us look like we rushed or made a bad decision or didn't think it through. But when it's working, you know, we look like we're fast thinking, fast acting. We have foresight, you know? Um, so th th that's kind of, th that's my story and, and how I got there. Yeah. Thanks for sharing uh, a few things I want to unpack from that. So that relates to my story. I did a similar thing when I finished school, I went to go study, uh, I wanted to study entrepreneurship and business. So what did I do? I, I did a three year, study in business management, not knowing that for three years I was studying management where I didn't want to study management. I wanted to study business and entrepreneurship, but I didn't read the actual title because ADD, I was like, yeah, business management. I thought it was business and it was management. So silly me, uh, a waste of three years of my life. And I couldn't, I couldn't apply that because I wasn't in a management role. And then I ended up losing the knowledge and still get the books, which was crazy. Another thing you talk about predetermination, I've got, or currently probably six jobs or six different businesses I'm in because it's like my wife calls me. There's a funny little clip online where it's, I can do that. I can do that. Someone comes with you and like, Hey, you can do that. They see great value in you. They invite you on opportunities. And sometimes we bite off more than we can eat. So we have so much food on the plate and we get to a point where we've, we've overcommitted ourselves and we suffer from overwhelm where we've got We've, we've said yes to so many people and, and a yes to others is a no for you. So now lately I've been saying no to opportunities because it's a yes to me and trimming down that as well. So knowing that if you, knowing you've got the skills, the talents and you want to help people and you're, and you're a people pleaser, we have to sometimes say no to opportunities or things so we can say yes to ourselves as well. Because at the end of the day, our health suffers if we're trying to please external people as well. So you talk about the link between ADD or ADHD and uh, addiction. Can you jam on that a little bit as well? Because I've suffered through the years of different addictions as well, whether that be addiction to consumption, addiction to information, addiction to reading books, how I created the world's largest free book summary website because of my addiction to knowledge. Can you talk about how different forms of addictions will play out with people with hyperactivity or ADD? Yeah, so, so it's not an area that I'm an expert in, um, but I, I can just share my own experience, right? So I, I'm very similar in that, you know, when I go in with something, I, 
I go all in, right? And I get hyper-focused on it. I learn as much as I can about it. Uh, and, and it goes the same with substances, right? So, um, you know, alcohol has never really been my thing. I mean, when, when I was a college kid, yeah, I drank, uh, you know, like most college kids do, but I, I hardly drink now. Um, but I have been a cannabis user most of my adult life. And I find that that helps just quiet my mind at the end of the day and that sort of thing. Um, I am lucky in that I don't have a substance abuse problem. Um, you know, I guess classically anyway, right. It hasn't affected my life. I don't uh, drink. I don't smoke. I use cannabis periodically. Um, I don't use hard drugs. Um, I don't gamble, nothing like that. Uh, but what you do find is that people with various types, there, there's two types of ADHD. There's the inattentive type and there's the hyperactive and impulsive type. And it's the hyperactive and impulsive type that correlates well with entrepreneurial success. So those are the type of people I tend to interact with. Those are the types of people I coach and, and that that's where I, the category I fall in. And we do tend to take things on and just go all in on them. And I think a lot of it is the, the sensation seeking that we're after and our high propensity for risk, right? So we we're, we're fine taking risks. And as a matter of fact, we don't even view them as that risky because in our minds we've mitigated them or it's not so much that we don't see the risk, but we're more likely to see the upside of it, right? So if, if we take this risk, this is the great thing that's gonna happen as a result. And yeah, we just kind of minimize all the bad things that could happen because that, that's not gonna happen to us, right? And I think you can translate that to addiction and substance abuse and gambling and, and things like that. Um, and, and the same thing with the just the impulsivity, right? Like. You know, I can remember as a teenager, um, you know, being in a group of people and, you know, somebody, hey, you want a, you want a cigarette? And, and I didn't smoke, but I'd be like, oh, yeah, sure, let me try it, right? Or you could imagine somebody else doing it with a pill or cocaine or God knows what, right? So that impulsivity and lack of premeditation coming together to, you know, to create the environment where addiction can take hold. There's problem, and, and I'm sure there's a bunch of other, um, you know, neurophysical things going on there that I just am not that aware of. Uh, when it comes to addiction, um, I don't know that there's a causal relationship. I just know that they correlate very highly. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. To expand on uh, cannabis, you say it so lightly, but you don't even talk about that. You're a member of Focus, uh, Foundation of Cannabis uh, Unified Standards. Are you still with that organization? And can you tell people what that is about, you know, the certification of, of cannabis? Yeah, sure. So, so the founder, Leslie Engelking, um, reached out to me a number of years ago. And because, you know, 10 years ago, nobody was really talking about cannabis publicly, right? Because it was still taboo. It was bad. You could lose your job, whatever. Um, but Leslie was taking an approach like, hey, somebody's got to take the lead here. And there should be a set of ANSI standards for people in the industry, right? So there should be standards for people who grow, who manufacture, who sell, who prescribe and on and on. And she had come across something I had written or said, and she asked if I'd be on the advisory board to help develop the standards for, for the industry, which I was more than happy to do. I was really impressed with her and her efforts. So Focus has a set of standards. They're voluntary standards that businesses can use to show the public that they're serious about standards and quality. And it's just a, it's a public display of a commitment to a certain level of quality among, among industry professionals. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I have, um, I have a friend who's a, a regular cannabis user for a long time and he basically informed me recently that he got his card to carry cannabis and he said the reason for it is and he said i won't take the cannabis that he can get legally 
because the quality is not as good as the cannabis he can get organically from his you know his sources and I, I found that really interesting so when you when you touched on that and i read the book yeah really really interesting yeah i'd be i'd be careful with that um only because at least the regulated industry you can you have a reasonable assurance that it's been tested and there's no heavy metals or pesticides and fungicides and things like that in it um you know gray market and black market cannabis a lot of it could be fantastic but yeah you do take a little bit of a risk yeah you talk about a little bit about ypo as well i'm interested in that organization can you expand on 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 what uh, YPO is. Yeah, it's, it's this amazing peer group for CEOs of organizations of certain size and complexity. So it was founded actually by a guy named Ray Hickok out of Rochester, New York. And he found himself the CEO of his family business when his father died young. And he was a young guy. And he, he, was, he felt like a fish out of water. He's like, I'm not ready to run this company. So he just sent an unsolicited letter to a bunch of young CEOs that he knew and said, hey, let's meet up in New York City and, and just talk and help each other. And from there, YPO was born. And now there's 122,000 members in 130 company or countries throughout the world. And we all get together in you know, our local chapters for education and idea exchange to be better people, better leaders, better CEOs. Um, I've been a member since 2005. It has been a super helpful and profound experience for me. Um, a lot of the things I've done professionally, I've done much better because of my YPO peers. Uh, one of the real benefits of being a member is uh, you get to be in a forum. And a forum is a group of eight to 10 members from non-competing industries who get together usually monthly, four to six hours to talk about their stuff, um, business, personal, family, whatever it is, and highly confidential things you talk about, don't leave the room, but you can lay it out there in a non-judgmental setting where you'll get not advice. People don't tell you what you should do, but they'll share experiences or offer you a resource. And it's, you know, it's your personal board of directors. Um, and it, it's been amazing for me. So besides that, they also have amazing educational events linked up with, you know, London Business School, Harvard Business School, Stanford, Columbia. Uh, so you can go to those types of things. If you have personal, personal passions like wine or tri sports or whatever it is, there's networks for that and you can do events. Um, and there's, there's great programming and activities for your kids and spouses. So, um, sorry for that relatively long commercial for YPO, but, um, it's, it's quite an incredible organization. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm interested in it. I've run masterminds and uh, been involved in the networking, but um, yeah, it's it's not just easy as just paying for it. There's certain criteria you have to um, have to join the organisation. Is that correct? There's a certain bar that you have to meet. Right. So I th I think it's it's either 13 or 15 million in in turnover annually. 50 employees, um, and you have to have you have to be the titular head of the organisation. So you have to be chairman, managing member, CEO, something like that. So you, you basically, you can report to a board of directors, but you can't report to another person, in other words. Yeah, yeah got it, got it, no, cool. One thing I wanna to touch on, and we'll get back to entrepreneurship, is the life cycle of the entrepreneur, and you know, knowing when to hit the accelerator, knowing when to hit the brake as well, but also knowing when it's time to, um, you know, hire professionals and you know fire themselves basically get get themselves out of the business and get other people in the business because we 
But the problem I have, and I'm sure a lot of people have it too, we're so good at ideas and starting things and can see things from different angles, and we might start 12 things in a year, but we're never giving them the full attention for it to grow. It's like someone just planting seeds everywhere, but never watering the plants. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I've got this new plant. How important is it for an entrepreneur to understand the life cycle of, of an entrepreneur as well? It could be one of the more important things to understand, right? And, and you hit it right on the head, right? We're really good at starting things. I mean, that our, our skill set is uniquely suited to that, right? Because we can handle uncertainty and ambiguity. As a matter of fact, we thrive in it and we may create uncertainty and ambiguity where none exists just because that's where we're comfortable. Right. So we're really good at that. And all, all the things, you know, this high propensity for risk, highly proactive, high sense of urgency, low premeditation, high sensation seeking, all of those things drive you to, to do new things. Right. We, we start new things. We take risks. We hustle for customers and other, you know, you know, key resources in ways that other people either can't or just aren't comfortable with. We're super good there. Once the company develops and you kind of go through the life cycle and you get to the point in the organizational um, history where it requires not so much acquisition of resources and putting things together, but co coherent deployment of those resources. In other words, policies, procedures, you know, things like that. When the organization requires those types of things, that's where we start to lose it, right? I'm... I'm a perfect example. We would develop policies and procedures. I'd send them out and say, hey, please follow this from now on. And I'll give you one guess as to who would be the first person to violate every one of those. It was always me, right? I say, hey, this is the way we're supposed to do things. And somebody would say, hey, I, I, you're not doing it that way. I thought we were supposed to do it this way. And I'd say, oh yeah, I guess but that's just gonna take me longer, right? as an example. So it's really important to find that operator, right? That solid number two, the per, like the COO person who can get into the details is process oriented. So you can go on and, and do what you're really good at and let them run the organization and have it be coherent, cohesive, organized, that sort of thing. Because the truth is that's really the only way you're going to scale. Um, you, you can't, I mean, you can scale, but it'd be painful for everybody if you're just running it haphazardly. If you have that operator who approaches it with that COO number two operator mindset, it's going to be much better. It's probably one of the hardest things for a founder CEO to do because you're kind of giving up control of your baby. You're the, you're the founder. It's your company. It's got your DNA in it. But you've got to get to the point where you realize that the value creation uh, is going to be much better if you can give it over to somebody who's better suited for it so you can be freed up to, the to do the things that you're good at and that nobody else is going to do as good as you. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me, I read a book many years ago. I did a book summary on it. It's called Barbarians to Bureaucrats by Lawrence Miller. I'm not sure if you've heard of that one. It's a, like a cult classic in the 80s. I have heard of it, yeah. Great book. So basically what it says is from my memory, you've got the entrepreneur who's the profit of the business and then they turn into barbarian and they build it up. So they start up being a profit barbarian, 
builder and explorer, then they get it to the point where you need administrator. That's when you realize you need to build that that executive team around you to take the company to the next level. And then the company turns into, you know, a bureaucrat aristocracy. And then you can jump on to being a profit for another thing as well. So this ties into the next question, which is serial entrepreneurship. The reason ADD, ADHD, well, by the way, we haven't even got into, what is the difference between those two words as well uh, from your understanding? Well, so, so ADD is attention deficit disorder. Um, the, really, the, the term that most people in the field use now is ADHD. It's attention deficit hyperactivity disorder because they're recognizing hyperactivity as, as a key part of it. So it really just reflects that there's two presentations. One is the inattentive type and the other is the hyperactive and impulsive type. Got it, got it, got it. I'm the hyperactive one. Anyway, I did the self-test as well. But back to serial entrepreneurship, is that why most serial entrepreneurs, uh, quote-unquote, diagnosed with ADHD is because they start something, get bored, or get success, and then want to have that stimulus and move on to the next creative idea? And it's not our fault because we, we can see so many opportunities where others can't. And that that's a blessing as well. But understanding that you can build things to a point, but you need to get other people involved in as well. Can you touch on serial entrepreneurship and um, ADHD as well? Sure. Um, so, so during the, the study we did on the YPO members, I forget the exact number, but a, a high number of the subjects were in the process of starting another venture at the time of the survey. So that they were actively, you know, starting a new venture, um, which, you know, was fun and interesting, but not surprising. So serial entrepreneurs, they, they, they start companies over and over again. Sometimes they even overlap or are going on at the same time. And for a lot of people, they think that that sounds horrible. It sounds like you're overworked and stressed and we just can't process that. For us, you know, people who are wired that way, it's, it's completely natural, right? Because it's, it's more fun. It would, like you said, we'd get bored working on the exact same thing over and over. And we might even cause trouble there because we're just trying to, to make it a place where we can function well. So if you think of all the traits in hyperactive ADHD, right? This high propensity for risk, or being highly proactive, right? So if you're highly proactive, you're, you're always looking for the next opportunity. You're looking at things in a different way, right? You're seeing things that other people aren't. We also have a high sense of urgency. So like when we see something, we feel like, hey, we gotta jump on it now because I'm gonna miss this bus if we don't, right? Of course, the low premeditation is important. We don't overthink things, which sometimes can be a really bad thing, especially if there's things that should have been thought through, right? Um, but that low premeditation, like just being able to have the courage to, to jump and act quickly lends itself really well to serial entrepreneurship. Um, the other thing that's really well, really good is that we move on quickly, right? We don't dwell on mistakes that happen, right? So if we have a failure, we brush it off and we move on and it doesn't preclude us from starting something else, right? It doesn't stay in our head saying, oh my God, I'm a failure. This last company failed. We don't think about that. We think about the excitement of the next thing. And there's a cool correlation with uh, elite athletes. So, you know, at Syracuse University, I have the pleasure of working with a lot of our NCAA Division One athletes. And, you know, one of the things that they say is that they have to have a short memory during a game or a match, because if they remember the bad play that they just had, it's going to affect the next one. They've got to forget about it. They cannot think about that failure. They've got to think about executing properly on the next one. And I think that's true of entrepreneurs too. And it's one of the reasons I think uh, elite athletes make such good entrepreneurs. 
Um, so there's that we're able to move on, right? We don't, we have this short memory and we have this high sensation seeking. We need new sensations, right? Maybe you, you bungee jump. I'm a surfer. You know, I had a little board injury just the other day, which is why I'm stitched up. Um, but we have this need for adrenaline and dopamine and we seek sensations. New company starts are another form of sensation. And of course we're highly impulsive. We can just decide one day, Hey, we're going to do this. We don't know how we're going to do it. We're just going to do it. Um, that presents a lot of opportunities, but it also presents a lot of problems for the people in our lives. So yeah, that's serial entrepreneurship. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm surrounded by serial entrepreneurs being one myself, the people I'm attracted to and the people that are attracted to me are serial entrepreneurs. And one of my good friends, he's probably got three good startups at the moment and it's scary because knowing the stats of the failure rate, he thinks all of them are going to be great. And I'm with him all the whole way on it. So as well, so it's scary to watch people, you know, go, go balls out, so to speak on, on multiple companies, which is great. And it's such a, it's a, such a great sport. People say, Oh, do you, do you follow sport? I said, I'm in business. Like business is, business is the best sport. You business is the best sport you can be in. Where can people find the ADHD self-reporting scale? I know at the end of the book, you talk about that as well. Um, is that a good tool that people could use to test themselves to see if they fall over or under and or what is some of the criteria that uh, people should look out for as well? Yeah, so, so they, they, they measure ADHD just based on, on behaviors and traits, right? So there's, there's a self-reporting scale that actually, if, if, um, if you have my book in the back of the book, there's a link to it. Um, it, it the World Health Organization publishes this self-reporting self scale and you just answer a series of questions and at the end it tells you, you know, yeah, you, you might want to see a doctor and talk about a diagnosis, right? Um, yeah, so the book is Lightning in a Bottle, How Entrepreneurs Can Harness Their ADHD to Win. Uh, there's a link to it there. Uh, and I think if you just go to the World Health Organization ADHD self-report scale, you can grab it there as well. Yeah, perfect. Uh, John, I want to thank you for being a guest. Where can people find out more about yourself? Where can they find your book as well? Do you spend time socially? And uh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm more of a LinkedIn person. Uh, my Instagram is kind of a joke. My, my kids tease me a lot <laughs> about that. I, I just don't Instagram that much. Uh, but LinkedIn is a great place to find me. Uh, you can buy the book uh, in hard copy on Amazon, or you can also get an Audible, uh, Apple, you know, a variety of, um, of online platforms. So the, the audio version just got released. Um, it's been a couple of years since the print version was out and my publisher kept saying, Hey, you know, for this audience, you really need an audio version. Uh, but like we talked about earlier, I, every time I'd sit down to try to record the audio, I would stop. I would get frustrated. I just didn't have the time. I was bored with it. So a after a couple of attempts, I said, you know what, I'm just going to hire I'm gonna hire somebody to do this. Well, I'm, I gotta take my own advice. I'm clearly never gonna do this. So I hired a voiceover guy uh, to, to read the book. So, and, and I did do my own little voicing um, of an introduction that explains, hey, you know, this book is read by somebody else because I just couldn't do it. I could not get it done. So anyway, you can find the audio version on Audible and iTunes and that sort of thing if, if you'd rather listen. John, that's a great idea because my book I released in 2020, I'm halfway through the audio and it's been three years and I'm stuck halfway through it. So I think I might take your advice and hire an audio person to do the audio version of my book because yeah, you get, and it just goes down the priority list of uh, what's important through there. But no, thank you for sharing your story. Um, 
Uh, yeah, it's been great. Great conversation as well. Definitely a great book as well. So to my audience, go out there, check John's uh, book out, uh, do the test, um, check out his stuff as well. You've got the TEDx talk on YouTube as well. Um, thank you for being a guest and enjoy the rest of your day and we shall speak soon. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, John. No problem.